0: The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Question for you guys. Have you ever had the opportunity to go wind sailing? No. Oh, man. Uh, I think maybe there are a couple of you who have tried perhaps much more adventurous wind-powered sports like maybe windsurfing where you stand on the board or even kitesurfing. But what I'm talking about is the two-person boat with a single sail that they have at a lot of hotels and beaches. When I was in my teens, uh, my brother and I had the opportunity to learn to pilot one of those. So we had to learn how you push the boat out into the water and you drop the keel down into it because the keel doesn't stay in place. When you park it on the shore, the keel comes out. You have to drop the keel down, all while keeping control of the sail and not letting the boat run away from you. Uh, we had to learn how to you, you pull yourself into the boat and you get situated. And one of us would be handling the rudder and the other would be holding the rope that controls the boom that's attached to the base of the sail. You know, you can pilot one of those boats by yourself, but in my opinion, it's a lot more fun with two. The obvious thing about sailing is what makes it so exhilarating. The wind does all of the real work. When you catch the wind and the boat starts to pick up speed and the rope that's connected to the boom now starts to get get taut and one side of the boat starts to lift out of the water, you have to use your body weight to lean back against the other side of the boat so that you don't capsize. In learning, we capsize many times. And when water gets in that sail, it's very hard to lift out of the water. But, you know, when you get going now and you get the hang of it, you're powering through the water and you're cutting through and bouncing off the waves and the sea spray is in your face and it's, it's just amazing. And you're, you're gripping this rope and it's so tight. Yeah, it really is exhilarating. You see, the wind does all the work, but what you have to learn is how to catch it, how to welcome it, how to posture towards it. How to position your sail and yourself so that you're carried along by it. And even on days when you you stand on the shore and what it feels like a gentle breeze to you, it's amazing how fast and how far you can go in one of those boats when the wind fills your sails. You appreciate the power of the wind in a different way when you get out there. For the last couple of weeks, we've been preaching our way through our statement of faith. The statement of faith that we share with our sister churches in Sovereign Grace. That's our denomination. That statement represents a summary of the Bible's teaching on key points of doctrine essential to our beliefs, conduct, and witness. For the last two weeks, we've looked at the person and work of the Holy Spirit and the application of salvation by the Holy Spirit. Sorry, I'm completely lost here. I did something wrong with my page. <laughs> so, quite often in the Bible, The Holy Spirit is likened to wind. And I think today that that metaphor is going to help us as we consider the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see, when it comes to the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit, what's required of us is not just awareness of the fact, but a particular posture towards the Spirit's work. You see, you can't sail while sitting on the beach. The wind might be blowing, but it's not going to propel you if you don't get out there and get your sail positioned. The Bible teaches us that we, as believers in Christ, live in the age of the Spirit. But that doesn't automatically mean that we will receive all the blessings of the Spirit. You can be indwelled by God's Spirit, yet not experience all the benefits of His presence in you. But God, in His grace and love, uh, He calls us through His Word to a posture and a pursuit in relation to His Spirit. We are called to welcome and pursue the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, For the glory of Christ and the good of his body. Every Christian believes in the empowering work of the Spirit. Yet between differing schools of thought or understanding and posture varies greatly. And the disagreements are often sharp and divisive once you start to explore. uh, Sorry, once you start uh, to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many are rightly concerned about abuses and excesses. Rightly because that's a concern in the pages of the Bible. But we also see a concern about neglect or disinterest in, in the scriptures. Which means that that's one we too must share. Even though these are choppy waters, we can't please God by avoiding them. The ascended Christ poured out his spirit on his people. The spirit empowers us so that Jesus will be glorified and his body will be strengthened to be who we ought to be and to do what we're called to do. So we must pursue both right doctrine of the Spirit and right response to God's commands. So we are called then to welcome and pursue the empowering work of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ and the good of his body. Our statement of faith lays out the summary of our teaching on the empowering work of the Spirit under two headings, the filling of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Now, I couldn't find any compelling reason not to use those headings as a structure for this sermon. There's much to explore under each of those headings, so you'll understand if we can't delve deeply into all of it this morning. But I'll do my best with that limitation granted to sketch out the shape of the Scripture's teachings on this subject. For each of the headings I'm going to use, I'm going to point to one key verse. So if you, keep, if you, if you write down only one verse, there'll be one key verse under each heading. That's going to help you. We uh, won't tell you the whole story. But it's going to instruct us in the right posture to take towards the empowering work of the Spirit. So let's pray and then let's dive right in. Holy Spirit, I need you this morning. Uh, We need you this morning. There are things that only you can do in our minds and hearts. So we look to you to move among us. Uh, To cause the Word of God, which is living and active, to be living and active for us this morning. To cause it to come alive and to speak to us. uh, To restructure our understanding and to give us appetites uh, that will lead to us pursuing what pleases you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So let's begin then with the filling of the Spirit. And here's our key verse. It's Ephesians 5.18. So, I'll read it. You don't have to turn there yet. We're going to work our way back there. But it says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We're going to look at this verse closely in a bit and give our attention to the surrounding context. But here's something I want you to be aware of at this juncture. This verse would be bewildering to us if we were Old Testament believers. Not the prohibition of drunkenness. Both through its stories and direct instructions, the Old Testament consistently counsels against drunkenness. It's that second part. It's to be filled with the Spirit. At that time, the presence of the Spirit distinguished people for particular roles. So kings or prophets or priests were anointed with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit would also fall on particular people. Uh, at particular moments, empowering them for particular purposes. So you might think of people like Samson, who seems like a strange candidate for the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God was on him for a particular purpose. While the Spirit was no stranger to those who lived before the coming of Jesus, everyone could not hope or expect to be filled with the Spirit. But there were promises in God's word that look forward to a day, to a time when all of God's people would be marked by the presence of his spirit within them and on them. These promises are recorded in verses like Ezekiel 36, 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And Joel chapter 2, 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward. That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. So turn with me for a bit to Acts chapter 1. So we'll look here for a bit and then we'll move over to Ephesians. After Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This is Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts records how Jesus ascended into heaven with these disciples watching. And as he promised, not many days from then, the Spirit came in a way that he had never come before. Acts chapter 2 details that day. There was a sound like wind that filled the upper room where the disciples, uh, and likely it was a whole group of 120 disciples where all of them were staying. And when they looked around at each other, the best way they could describe what they saw is it looked like everybody's head was on fire. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they started to speak in languages that they did not know as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Soon, Peter would explain what was happening to a confused and in part skeptical crowd that had gathered because of the sound of the coming of the Spirit. And he explained it by pointing their attention to the promise that we just read in Joel chapter 2. The age of the Spirit began that day. In fact, the book of Acts is really the acts of the Holy Spirit. He is the central character. Other characters come into focus from time to time. We see a focus on Peter at some, some points. We see a focus on Paul at other points. We see the journey of churches. But the star is the Spirit. That focus on the Spirit is telegraphed telegraphed a number of times. If you scan with your eyes through chapter 1 of Acts, you'll notice that the Spirit is mentioned many times. The Holy Spirit is mentioned many times in that chapter and going into chapter 2. The book is really about his activity as he empowers the early church to bear witness about Jesus in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, what many people are drawn to in the narrative of Acts, like moths to a flame, as it were, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's by no means an idea that anyone imports into the text of Acts. It's right there. It's what Acts leads off with. But what should we make of it? Here's where it gets tricky. Acts describes what happened in a number of instances when the Spirit was poured out on people. Does that make those descriptions prescriptive? Is Acts normative for us? So, should we, for example, tarry or wait for the Spirit? Because that's what the disciples did in Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit is poured out, is it necessarily an observable phenomenon? Is it necessarily evidenced by speaking in tongues? Now, I'm being very unfair to you because I'm not going to answer most of those questions today. So, you know, I'm not going to tackle a lot of them head on. Feel free to accost me afterwards. Yes, I know, I know. But what I will say is this. One of the values that's shared by all Sovereign Grace churches is that we are continuationists. Among other things, that means we believe that the Holy Spirit gives supernatural gifts to build up the church just as he did in the book of Acts. Yet if you read our statement of faith, and we continue to recommend that you take some time to do so, we do not articulate a position on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now this can appear like a glaring omission. The reason for that is that we make room for a range of views on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So some pastors in Sovereign Grace who I know well hold to a Pentecostal or charismatic view that sees spirit baptism as subsequent to or at least distinct from conversion, but without the insistence that speaking in tongues must be the primary physical evidence of being baptized in the Spirit. Other pastors in Sovereign Grace hold to what's called the third wave view that sees spirit baptism as a part of conversion under the new covenant. We've learned to work together, and we've seen many benefits to doing that. And that happens even within the same team of elders. People have different views on how the baptism of the spirit works. What's key in all of this is that we reject any notion of a two-level Christianity. I've experienced that here in Jamaica, growing up in the Christian student movement, where you meet people from all over. So the first question is, well, are you a Christian? And you say, yes. But then the next question is, but have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And the implication is that if you can't point to that experience, evidenced by speaking in tongues, then you're not the real deal. So we reject all that as an outright teaching or even an implication because according to the Bible, every believer is indwelled with God's Holy Spirit. You see, the age of the spirit doesn't just mean that the spirit is now more widely available than before. It doesn't just mean that the spirit is available in greater measure than before, though that is an accurate biblical statement. The age of the spirit also means that he lives in each and everyone who has put their faith in Jesus. God's old covenant people were characterized by his presence among them. So think of the Exodus. Think of God traveling with his people and He's present among them by his spirit. We live under a new and better covenant that's characterized by his presence within us. That's what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 8 verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, one of the reasons we should never be flippant or casual about holiness is that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. When we sin, he is still within us. We all intuitively understand that the appropriateness of behavior can be determined by the one who is in the room. So if a child, or perhaps your pastor, or your old school principal is around, we may be more careful about what we say or do. But God's Spirit lives in us. Because of his presence, all sin is always inappropriate. It's out of place. Yet, the amazing news is that because of the Spirit of God, our sins do not and cannot condemn us. Romans 8, 1-2 has saved me over and over as a believer from despairing about myself completely. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, no charge can be brought against us. We have been acquitted and God is for us. Yet that's different from saying that sin no longer matters. The God who saved us wants us to please him. So what we must learn to do is to learn how to walk according to the Spirit, not according to our flesh, according to our sinful impulses. And this is a good point at which to return to Ephesians chapter 5. So please turn there with me. We're going to read some verses surrounding verse 18. So we'll read from verses 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk. submitting to one another out of reverence for christ now i had a problem when i was preparing because this these particular verses they're like a supermarket aisle and they're stocked with so much good stuff and i was tempted to just start grabbing stuff and throwing it into the sermon but i had to remind myself that i came here to fill my cart with some things in particular so here's what we need to pick up today if god's purposes are to be accomplished in us And through us, as we live in these evil days, we need to be filled with the Spirit. Now let me say that in another way at greater length, adding some other dimensions that we see here. If we are to bring glory to Christ by how we live in the world, making the most of the opportunities that we have, and by how we live in our relationship with God and our brothers and sisters, then we need to obey this command to be continually filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Let's try to get our hands around that and to toss it around for a bit. So firstly, it's a command. That means that it's not automatic. If we ignore it, we have no reason to think that it will simply happen to us. And we're being disobedient. Yet it's a passive command. The command isn't fill yourself with the Spirit, but to be filled. It's calling us to desire something that we cannot accomplish for ourselves. And there's no procedure given here. It's much more about posture in the first place. And since God's commands reveal God's will, we can be confident that he wants to fill us with his spirit. And the tense here means that being filled with the spirit is not one and done, but it's something that God wants to do over and over again for us. Paul pairs the positive command with a negative one. Do not get drunk with wine. It's comparison and contrast. When you're controlled by alcohol, you are unable to control yourself. You lose time and opportunities uh, to, to please God, and you live foolishly and recklessly. In, in the end, it causes damage to yourself and to others. When we're filled with the Spirit, we don't lose control because the fruit of the Spirit is self control. The fullness of the Spirit is consonant with walking in wisdom and doing God's will. Just as it was for Jesus. And the fruit of our lives blesses others and honors God. Look at verse 19 in the text. The scholar F.F. Bruce explains how those who are filled with the Spirit are characterized here. Their mouths will be filled with words which build up the lives of others and bring glory to the living and true God. And it's interesting that Paul locates a mutual edification in corporate worship. As we speak to each other through our singing, the spirit can be powerfully at work among us. I remember growing up, I had a granduncle who would come from time to time to visit my grandmother's house. And if we were staying there, we'd hear somebody knocking at the gate and we'd look out and we'd say, oh, okay, that's Uncle Son. And, you know, we knew to keep a safe distance from Uncle Son. Um, yeah, it was Uncle Son. I, I, and I've never really asked why his name was Uncle Son. because, like, Anyway, yeah. But though Uncle Son never drank in our presence, you could smell the spirits on him when he spoke. What aroma will people detect when we speak if we are filled with the spirit? Look at verse 20. The aroma people detect when we speak is thanksgiving. So the question is, is gratitude the consistent flavor of your speech? Does it flow from your mouth? Or do you find yourself much more characterized by complaining? If you're not sure, ask your friends, your spouse, your family, your coworkers. Remember, the days are evil, you know. That means that there's going to be a lot to complain about. But if we're filled with the Spirit... We'll have the Spirit's perspective on our circumstances and experiences as he helps us to see our lives through the lens of God's word. In verse 21, Paul points out another effect of the fullness of the Spirit, appropriate submission in human relationships. He goes on from here to describe God-honoring relationships in the family between husband and wife, parents and children. John Piper comments that Christian family life is a work of God's Spirit. He also describes relationships between servants and masters, which is instructive for us as we work for others and as others work for us. We're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit soon, but recognize that the giving of spiritual gifts is only one dimension of the Spirit's empowering work. He empowers us to glorify Jesus and to bless others in everyday life. I want to read a part of our statement of faith which pulls from the rest of the New Testament to describe and celebrate what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to encourage us to lean in towards this aspect of the Spirit's work. It says, To be filled with the Spirit is to be more fully under His influence, more aware of His presence, and more effective in His service. All Christians, therefore, must continually seek to be filled with the Spirit, by living and praying in such a way that invites the Spirit's work among us, actively longing for God to accomplish his gracious purposes in us and through us. The filling of the Spirit brings to God's people a deeper knowledge of Christ, an increased desire for holiness, a stronger commitment to unity and love, a greater fruitfulness in ministry, and a deeper gratitude for our salvation. Even though Paul does not describe any ritual here, there are several texts that help us to understand what it looks like to seek to be filled with the Spirit. In Luke 11, Jesus teaches us to ask for the Holy Spirit. The context is that he was teaching his disciples about prayer. This is where Luke records the Lord's Prayer and goes on to teach us to ask. And he ends that section with teaching us to ask for the Holy Spirit. So surely we should pray about this also, shouldn't we? In Ephesians 4, Paul indicates that a failure to put off sins that displease God and to put on behaviors consistent with our new life in Christ grieves the Holy Spirit. We cannot accommodate sin and the fullness of the Spirit in our lives. And in Colossians, Paul links the same effects we saw in Ephesians 5 to letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, which implies that being filled with the Word and being filled with the Spirit walk hand in hand. Which leads to one of my favorite verses in, uh, in the Bible about reading the Bible. 2 Corinthians three eighteen, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. All believers then are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And God calls all believers to seek to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we experience the fullness of God and so that that fullness overflows from us to others. But there's another dimension to the empowering work of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. So please turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As you turn there, I want to point out something to continue to expand our perspective on the empowering work of the Spirit. We need to recognize that the work of the spirit uh, or sorry, we need to recognize the work of the spirit in what appears to be normal aspects of community life. When we serve each other with joy, uh, whether that be wrapping up cables or making a meal for someone, ushering, taking care of the little ones among us, wiping floors, listening attentively and encouraging deliberately, that is evidence of the spirit's work among us. We can make the mistake of thinking those categories of service are normal and natural since they don't appear to require the power of the Spirit. But we forget that none of this is normal. The local church is a miracle. We are joined to each other by the unity, fellowship, and love of the Spirit. And among the gifts listed in the New Testament are serving and contributing Yesterday we had a bunch of people and a small army in our new home helping us to get the place ready. Most of them are members of this church. All of them are in our lives because of Jesus. And they did menial tasks with joy and laughter. I mean, when somebody come and just wipe your toilet, you're just like, all right, well, you know, that's, that's love. And that's not normal. So let's rejoice when we see service with joy among us. Let's point out to each other how the Spirit is at work in those moments. Our key verse, the one that points to the posture that we must have when it comes to spiritual gifts, is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. It says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. No, without any context, that is a peculiar verse. But what's obvious is how it calls us to pursue love and the empowering work of the Spirit through particular gifts. So if you get nothing else about spiritual gifts this morning, get this. God is calling us to earnestly desire them and to employ them in our pursuit of loving one another. Spiritual gifts are power to love. And once again, the presence of this command means that Christ is glorified when we walk in obedience to it. So we say this in our statement of faith as we define spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are those abilities and expressions of God's power given by his grace for the glory of Christ and the building up of the church. Now to see all that, we need to draw from the wider context supplied by 1 Corinthians from chapters 12 through 14. So let's start, jump back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 12, 1. It says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul is correcting the ignorance and errors of the Corinthian church around their understanding and use of spiritual gifts. God does not want us to be uninformed about spiritual gifts either. So he teaches us too through these chapters. For the sake of time, what I'm going to do is gather some lessons here for our benefit. We learn in these chapters that there are a wide variety. Yes, it's shaking. No, that's not the spirit coming, guys, on IG. That was a small child attacking the the stand. So, no, you didn't miss out on the spirit falling on us. All right, so what we're going to learn in these chapters is that there are a wide variety of spiritual gifts. all, All given by the Holy Spirit. Just as every Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, every Christian has been given spiritual gifts by him. Paul teaches in verse 11 that it is a spirit who sovereignly decides who gets what and how much. And these gifts are not given to indicate hierarchy, but for the common good. They've been given so that we can serve one another. Spiritual gifts are given to reflect God's design for his body, the church. One of diversity and mutual dependence. In this chapter, Paul compares that diversity to body parts which serve different functions. So think with me about the implications of that. God has given you particular gifts and joined you to a particular local church because he means for you to serve others in love. And he's equipped you to do things that, at the very least, not many others can do. That means that God does not design local churches to carry passengers. If you're here, then you're meant to be participating in particular ways that benefit others. As we've been growing as a local church, I've been able to observe some fascinating gifts at work. We have a few people with the gift of remembering people's names and their stories. I don't think I need to attempt to shoehorn that into any of the gift lists in the New Testament to defend the legitimacy of a gift that makes others feel so loved and welcomed. I've also seen the gift of encouragement at work among us. As the name indicates, encouragement puts courage into you so that you can do what God has called you to do. There are some of you with the gift of lifting others up with your words, strengthening their feeble limbs and making their steps a bit more sure as they follow Jesus. What Paul teaches here is meant to strengthen our faith, to use our gifts for the benefit of others. One way that we can be uninformed about spiritual gifts is to think that one of the worst things that we could do is make a mistake or fail as we try to serve others. That's not true. One of the worst things we can do is to withhold our gifts from others. We overcome our fear by growing in love, by becoming less self-absorbed and more aware of others and their needs. For me, one of the arenas in which I'm seeing the supernatural work of the Spirit is in prayer. As I continue to learn to step out in faith and to pray for people, fairly often in the midst of praying, I get some insight that I believe is from God's Spirit, and I'm able to mention it to the person or to pray in response to it. Now, is that prophecy? I don't know. Uh, I don't think I have the gift of prophecy. Is it what the Scriptures call word of knowledge? I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to connect our experiences to the list that the New Testament provides. Whatever it is, based on the feedback that I get from people, often about how what I shared or prayed resonates with them, or how much they were encouraged by it, I'm convinced that what is happening in those moments is that the Spirit is at work within me, empowering me to care for others through Spirit-led prayer. But it doesn't come from kind of sitting down, concentrating hard, gathering spiritual insight into a concentrated ball and then firing it off. It comes as I step out in faith to do what I know pleases God. Pray for others. And particularly in the context of this family. Let's jump back to our key verse again uh, in chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy when Paul says this, he's echoing and expanding on what he said at the end of chapter 12. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. That's 1 Corinthians twelve thirty-one. The excellent way is what he expounds on in the famous 1 Corinthians 13. Love. Now, it's fascinating when you start to put some of these pieces together. The Holy Spirit chooses who gets what gifts. Every Christian has been given a gift or multiple gifts. There's no gift that everyone possesses. Yet we are told to desire the higher gifts. This means that like the filling of the Holy Spirit, the gift giving of the Holy Spirit is not one and done. He can choose to give new gifts to us whenever he wants. uh, uh, Earnest desires are expressed naturally in prayer. So the implication here is that we should pray for the gifts that will allow us to love others most effectively. In chapter 14, prophecy is one of the higher gifts that Paul is commending. I want to say uh, uh, several things about prophecy, but before I do that, it occurs to me that within the context of a local church, it's a valid thing to pray for gifts that you see to be absent within that church. You know, so in other words, desiring the higher gifts the principle Paul lays out doesn't just lead us towards prophecy in our context for example I've been thinking a lot about the fact that we need to pray for the gift of healing among us just as so many people have been suffering in so many ways pray that whether it's permanent or momentary in a situation that God would pour out the gift of healing among us so that some people can get healed from some of the things they've been suffering from long term But I want to take this opportunity, even as Paul points us to prophecy, to say a few things about prophecy. It feels to me uh, like in our own day and age, we've made the same error that the Corinthians made in elevating one gift over others. But for us, it is the gift of prophecy. Now, Paul certainly holds it up here as one to be desired. But why does he do that? Paul explains why he is highlighting this particular gift in verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So in comparison then to uninterpreted tongues, which are spoken to God and benefit the speaker, but no one else who is hearing, prophecy builds up, encourages, and consoles those who hear. In the Corinthian church, tongues were thought, thought of as this kind of super spiritual gift. So when they got together, everyone who could speak in tongues was eager to show that they could do that, and chaos ensued. Their their pursuit of spiritual one-upmanship was displeasing to God and contrary to love. So Paul was saying that prophecy is greater than tongues because of how it allows you to love others. So what of tongues then? Well, if it is to edify others, it must be interpreted so that they can understand what's being said. Now, Paul even teaches in verse 16 of this chapter that no one can say amen, no one can say so let it be to prayer in tongues if they don't understand what you're saying. The priority of love and edification means that tongues ought to be used in particular ways in the gathered church. What we need to be careful of is that we don't end up marginalizing this gift, but instead that we do what the scripture instructs, which is to pray that we might interpret. We summarize what Paul teaches in these chapters and what's taught elsewhere in the New Testament in this way in our statement of faith. The gifts are not to be exercised with apprehension, pride, or disorder, but with faith, love, and order, and always in submission to the authority of Scripture as the final revelation of God. That last part is really important. How does it help us to think about prophecy in particular? 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21 says this, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. That first negative command shows that we can adopt attitudes and postures that quench or stifle what the Spirit is doing. Paul doesn't leave us in the dark about what that could look like. Despising prophecies is one of the ways we can quench the Spirit. It's pretty clear that he's not speaking about prophecies from the Scripture, but those given through fallible fellow believers. So he instructs that instead of becoming cynical... And rejecting prophecy, we are to test everything and hold to what is good. But what is the standard by which we test everything? Well, the clearest standard we have is the Word of God. No God-given prophecy can contradict God's Word. And all prophecy sits beneath it. While the Holy Spirit revealed things to those who wrote the books of the New Testament, most of whom we know to be the apostles who are commissioned by Jesus, that process is complete. Prophecy does not provide the kind of revelation that, that should be regarded and honored and obeyed the way we do the scriptures. It is a gift to local churches for upbuilding and encouragement and consolation, as Paul puts it, but it is subordinate to God's eternal word. In chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says prophecies will pass away, but the teach teaches that the word of the Lord stands forever. One of the ways we have in the past, and you know, I talked. I need to talk to Ellis. I'm not sure we've been as consistent recently. But one of the things we try to do in our gatherings to represent this is that when a prophetic impression is given, we try to con- to explain that prophecy is under the word of God and is not simply to be received but to be tested. All of this highlights, though, the uncomfortable reality that New Testament prophecy appears to have the potential of fallibility. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21 calls us to a delicate balancing act. You see, we can fall off as, as we're trying to walk this on the side of despising prophecies. Or we can fall off on the side of embracing, running with, and building our lives and expectations on any and everything offered as a prophecy. God doesn't want us to live with either of those extremes. One of the ways that we can practically serve each other as we share What we believe are insights from the Lord is to frame them humbly. You see, it doesn't help others who have been given a command to test prophecies when we speak as if our words are infallible. Saying thus says the Lord puts an unnecessary and unhelpful burden on those listening. Saying something like, I think God might want to encourage you with this. Or, as one of our pastors in Sovereign Grace says, I thought it was quite peculiar the first time I heard it, but I came to appreciate it. He says, I have a subjective sense that, and then he shares whatever he feels the Lord has given him. He will share with you that he he knows he's been wrong in situations as a prophet, but his humility has helped people to receive his gifts still. You see, such humility is consistent with the love of Christ, who gives gifts to his people so that we'll be able to care for one another and grow in maturity together. He is the one who calls us to use our gifts in faith, to grow in them, and to pursue the gifts that allow us to love others by edifying them. So what we've seen today then is that we are called to welcome and pursue the empowering work of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ and the good of his body. That looks like seeking constantly to be filled with the Spirit, not as an emotional experience, but a spiritual and substantive one that produces worship thanksgiving, submission, holiness, love, and fruitfulness. It looks like ridding ourselves of indifference towards the Spirit and putting to death the sin that grieves Him. It looks like pursuing the gifts of the Spirit, which He has and is giving for the common good, and using them with faith, governed by love, in order, and under the authority of God's infallible Word. As your pastor, I'm sensitive to the fact that this is a delicate area for some of you. You've been scarred by bad experiences and your instinct is to stay on the shore where you feel safe, where people can't be manipulated and where you think God can't be dishonored. If that's you, I want to gently remind you that the Holy Spirit is a good gift. He is not a danger to us. Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He is the good gift that we want to welcome and pursue. And pursuing him honors the giver or heavenly father himself. We don't have to have all our questions settled to start praying in the way that Jesus taught. So let us not be a community with a wonderfully crafted doctrine of the spirit, yet a posture of indifference towards his empowering work. Instead, let's welcome his work through our lives and in our prayers. Let's ask him to pour out his gifts on us as a community so that we are not lacking in any gift as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's encourage each other as we witness and benefit from the gifts that God bestows, giving thanks to him for how he is blessing and equipping us to serve one another and to witness to the gospel. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.